Okay, wow. A little different today. <coughs> Excuse me. Just uh, before we get started, just to talk a little bit about what's going on. I mean, everything evaluates as it does with respect to the nation of Israel, because we are in that time where the focus is coming off of the church and going on to Israel. That is how it works, and that is the truth of the Bible. That is how it's laid out. And Israel, as you know, comes into being in 1948-49, and here it is now. So how does this current economic, political, geopolitical situation affect them? Europe, if you've been watching the news at all, has COVID levels that are exceeding the United States COVID levels, both in mortality and in cases. France, Italy, Belgium, Poland, United Kingdom, Spain, uh, they're, they're having upwards of 2,500 to 3,000 uh, deaths a day now. And the equivalency is the continent of Europe and the continent of the United States. Demographically, of course, it's different, but the ge- ge- geologically, it's very similar in size, of course, and uh, there's a great deal of uh, cultural differences, and so we should compare ourselves to Europe. Europe is thinking that not only will there be a second phase that they're going through, but they expect a third phase. If that happens, the the economic structure of the world is going to collapse. And what will take its place becomes the obvious question. So pay attention to that. Uh, We are in turmoil all over the world because of this pandemic. And... uh, if it lasts three years instead of two years, then all of this stays the same. We now order our groceries and people deliver them to us and drop them on the, on the porch and we wait for them to leave and we go out and grab them and bring them in. Now that is a terrific system unless you don't like isolation. And uh, it's very difficult for human beings and animals to be isolated. So we'll see the... These issues, if the European levels continue to be like they are, South American levels are difficult, and of course United States levels are difficult, Alaska levels are difficult. Okay, so keep watching that. Here we are, uh, November the 22nd, I hope, 2020, I'm pretty sure about that. Lecture discussion number 121, am I right about that? I got a thumb and a nod, and that's, I mean, that's the best I can do. That's the highest possible affirmation. And I am, of course, someone who did not get affirmed enough as a child. So validation is a problem for me. So I appreciate a thumb and a nod when I get it. Lecture discussion number 121 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, and now Job. How about that, huh? Last Sunday marked the return to my dining room. This is used to be the dining room, and now it's more or less the television room, the television our little TV is hidden behind this beautiful platinum model dry erase board that's reversible, as you know, and holy. But uh, we have come back here after 22 years. It's amazing for me to consider that. And I, we had four interim locations or facilities. So when I refer to metaphorically, when I refer metaphorically to Cliffside as a band of intrepid wanderers, that is a literal component. That's exactly what we have been, and that's probably what we will be again. And I must say also that I took the time to watch the video, and I don't do that. I rarely do that. I might watch a little bit of it, but 
I never spend any time listening to me because I find the lecturer, the speaker of these things, to be discursive and balding. And uh, he has a corrugated face now, and uh, so I refrain from self-flagellation as a general rule. But I made an exception and uh, this time. I wanted to verify my instinctive assessment from last week. Consider it a post-mortem, a necropsy, if you wish, not narcissism, in case you were wondering about that. Anyway, my suspicions were confirmed. The lighting was not flattering. Not a surprise. All lighting is not flattering to me now, as are all photographs. Every one, no exceptions. I'm in the stampeding livestock phase of my life, and I'm dealing with it. It's a little despairing. You avoid mirrors, you avoid dark glass, you don't look at photographs, you don't look at, you don't look at the water, if it's a, a, a deep pool, uh, everything. When you walk up against, against children, they shriek, they shriek and they withdraw. It's not much fun, but it is what it is, or it is how it is, it is what it will be. But anyway, all of that because I, I just don't like watching. But I did notice that the lighting was not very good. So we added some more lights. We happen to have contracting lights here for us to do different tasks that we do all the time. So we're trying them today. Hopefully that works. And also this uh, this new old uh, environment that I w- worked from last week. I-, I couldn't get comfortable. I just didn't feel right here. and it, I couldn't see my manuscript. Uh, and that and my printing was smaller than usual. I don't know why I did that, um, but uh, for some unknown reason, it's it's <sighs> dementia onset. I'm sure, elder disease, and I've got these. I'm more so inhibited now than before because I I have these vitreous detachments in both eyes now, which are little dark spots that float around, and I also have the clear arrowhead things that happen as well. And they have uh, the capacity to manifest without warning. And I, I, they picked Sunday because they're logical and they're, they're malevolent and they're sneaky, of course. And they picked last Sunday at 4 o'clock to rise up and block both of my eyes. And then the light that I had was very difficult. I couldn't read anything. had a tough time. So instead of being a one-eyed old bald man, I've, I had two. I couldn't see out of either eye. Usually it's just the left confined to the left, but now it's in the right. Uh, Your mother, Dave, uh, your your mother, uh, uh, Terry, told me she couldn't wait. She laughed one day when I told her I had vitreous detachments in the left eye. She went, ha, 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 you will have vitreous detachments in both eyes. I said, oh, no, not for, yes, I have it now in both eyes. And yeah, 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 these are my excuses so get used to it. I'm going to have more excuses. That is certain. Okay, Job. The book of Job, Satan is given permission by God to attack, to consider. God says, have you considered my, the evidence of my servant Job? That's what we have here as a trial. And it is a rebuttal, if you will. Satan has made an accusation against God in front of the angelic host. Uh, all all the time he he could from Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14 forward. So again, the timeline's valuable to establish. But in any event, they are having a conversation. Satan is accusing, and 
God has rebutted it. Have you considered the evidence that is occurring in my servant Job? Job is obviously evidence. He's a refutation of the lie of Satan. There is none like Job on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil, who holds fast to his integrity in spite of being besieged by Satan without cause. What I just gave you with Job 2.3. That's what the Bible says. Without cause is particularly important it's because it is a condemnation of Satan. Job is declared to be innocent by God, the judge, the ancient of days. He announces the vindication of Job, the acquittal, if you will, of Job. And Job says some amazing things while he is being tested. Let me write that down. Job tested. That should light you up. There's prohibitions of it, uh, with respect to testing, and then there is testing that is done by God himself. And Job is being tested by Satan. So we have tested, Job tested, and we have Satan as a component. So I would ask you immediately, where would you go? Where would you go in the Bible to find the New Testament complement? Well, obviously you have Christ being tested by Satan. So you would start there, Matthew 4, Luke 4, Mark 1. So there is your Job 2, Job 1, Job 2, Matthew 4, Luke 4 connection. And again, Job says some amazing things while Satan is testing him and we should review. What is, excuse me, what is Satan testing him for? What is the purpose of the test? Well, Satan reveals it. I hope you remember. So we should review as much of this as we can. But again, how interesting that Job is being tested by Satan. Jesus Christ himself tested by Satan. And of course, Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And that is something that Satan did not know at Matthew 4 and Luke 4 at the beginning. He did not know who he was up against. He thought this was an endowed man, much like Adam, perhaps. Maybe Moses. But certainly he did not know that the solution is the God-man. And though Satan was unable, he didn't know it at the time, but he was a, he was unable to withstand the command from Jesus to depart away with you, Satan. Now, when that happened, nobody does that to Satan. There is nobody more powerful than him. So he began to be suspicious. And I, at that point, I think Satan likely began to unravel the first Timothy 316, which is the mystery of godliness. At that point, he realized this is God. He recognized him at that point, I believe. I suspect that God has said before to Satan, away with you, Satan. This is not the first time that Satan confronted that language. And I imagine he recognized it. That's, of course, my view. Other people disagree with me. Yeah, I know it's inexplicable. And if the Job test attaches to the Christ test, so let me put it this way. If I lay it out in a formulaic manner, if the Job test takes us to the Christ test, then I've got some questions that pop up immediately, don't I? If Job attaches to Christ, Christ is who? How does he describe himself? 1 Corinthians 15. As the last Adam. 
or the second Adam. If Christ is the last Adam and Job test attaches to the Christ test, then Job has to attach to the Adam test. So you now need to discover what you consider to be the Adam test. Because all three of them would line up. We would expect that to be true. The Job test is similar to the Adam test because of the hedge, because of belief, because of integrity. The Christ test is completely different because at the time, Satan might have thought it was a hedge test or a belief test or an integrity test, as would be Job and Adam. But Christ said, away with you, Satan. That changes it. Now Christ is not being tested for belief because he has to believe in himself, which naturally he would do. He's not tested for integrity because he's impeccable. He has no sin in him and cannot have sin. So it isn't an integrity belief. And he doesn't need a hedge. He's omnipotent. So he differentiates himself from the two tests of Adam and Job. But they will all line up, if I hope that makes sense. He's the last Adam. The association to the first Adam uh, is, it can't be denied. Romans 5.14. Okay, Satan's accusation is that Job believes God, but only because there is a hedge around him. So Job has a hedge. God has put this protective barrier, Job 1, 9 through 11. Adam, of course, also has a hedge, doesn't he? He has a garden. God put a protective barrier around Adam. In both cases, Satan is able to breach. One, by permission to attack Job. Does he have permission to attack Adam? Did God give him permission to do that? Would they all line up like that? What do you think? Or is Job different than Adam? And if Job and Adam, of course, correlate, then what happens next? If I've got Romans 5.14, what am I missing from my little this uh, messy writing? I'm missing Deuteronomy 18.15 because I know that these guys are there. Who is Deuteronomy 18.15? You all know who Deuteronomy 18.15 is. That's Moses. So, when I have Job, and I have Adam, and I have Christ, then I'm going to have Moses because of Deuteronomy 18.15 and Romans 5.14. This connection between Adam and Moses brings us into this discussion with Job. And that makes us consider Job 1.12 and Job 2.6, and we should reread those today. So let's do that. Let's start at Job uh, Start at Job uh, 1 8 through 12. Let's see if it will work. Okay. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Again, this is not a, the first time this conversation has occurred between the two of them, even though it may be the first one recorded of them. There's two recorded. I believe they were many discussions with God and Satan in front of the angelic host in a courtroom type setting. Or if you want to think of it this way, when I was in high school, I participated in forensics. That does not mean looking at cadavers. That means debate. And so Satan and God have these discussions and there is a pretty good audience, wouldn't you suspect? I would suspect that the entire angelic host, whenever God and Satan have these kinds of discussions... 
uh, is present. Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and unright, un, uh, the, the, an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and says, Does God fear? Stop. I can see today. That's good. The cool thing about not having the broadcast system on me is I get to choose ice. <laughs> so Satan answered the Lord and says, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? Have you blessed the work of his hands and his possessions? Have increased in the land, but now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Okay, let's go to Job 1.20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell to the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with any wrong. Job 2, 2 through 10. And the Lord said to Satan, this is the second time this. We discussed this a little bit last week. Why are there two in Scripture? What's the point? It's always a point. From where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Of course, Satan had been considering his servant, Job. That's obvious. That's why he was going to and fro on the earth. One, it was his kingdom prior to Adam. But Adam has fallen at this point, and so Satan is back in charge in some respect. They call him the prince of the earth now instead of the king. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and he still he holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Why did he say that? What does he mean, skin for skin? Yes, all that, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now. So again, Satan says, you do this to him. You hit him. And touch his bone and his flesh and he will surely curse you to your face. Satan's talking about something that I find quite fascinating, isn't it? He's talking about the immune system. He's talking about hit him with disease. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, here's this. Can I jump on my hardwood floor? This is incredible. He is in your hand, but spare his life. So there is no permission to kill. You cannot. So Satan, and that's important to know. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job. So it's not God who struck Job. It's Satan who struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. How did Satan accomplish that? How did he do it? What's being demonstrated here about Satan? He has microbiological capabilities. How long has he had them? How did he get them? Now, his intelligence is beyond anything we can imagine. 
he struck Job with boil. The obvious question is, where did he get the boils? Where did he get the pathogen that causes boils? And Job took for himself a potsherd with which he to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? What does he what does she mean by integrity? Do you still hold fast to your integrity? The implication is, is that you ought not to, right? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now his friends show up immediately after this and they of course accuse Job of being evil. You are being, you are sick because you have brought it on yourself because of your sin. But remember, God says no, he's acquitted. And the Bible says that in all this Job did not sin with his lips. And all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And God says he is acquitted. Okay. That, of course, is the backdrop for where we are for the first few pages here. A lot to deal with. Obviously, the advice counsel of Job's wife is the most interesting, is it not? I hope it is. Curse God and die. That's what she says. Satan was unable to persuade Job in spite of the boils, in spite of all the adversity, the, the death of his children, the death of his servants, the death of his animals, his livestock, he was unable to persuade Job to curse God to his face. This is Satan's best work with regard to this person, Job. Now, again, Job connects to Adam. I want to know the test of Adam. How many were there? I've asked that question my whole so-called career. How many shots did Satan get at Adam before he gave up and went after the wife of Adam? Oh, look, we have the wife of Job. We'll get to that in a second as well. Okay, many seconds. Satan was unable to get Job to curse God to his face. But Job's wife, on the other hand, is certainly willing, isn't she? She allied herself. Who did she pick in the argument? Who did she argue on behalf of? She argued on behalf of the satanic line. That's what she did. That's a curious development. I hope you recognize that. More obviously, Job's wife must now be compared alongside who? That's right. We have other wives here. We have Moses' wife. What's her name? That's correct. Zipporah, those of you who... Zipporah. I think that's correct. Over here, we have the woman, Eve. So, right here, we have Job's wife. So I have the wife of Adam, I have the wife of Job, I have the wife of Moses. I would expect that there would be some kind of relationship, wouldn't I? Exodus 4, 24 through 26 is uh, Zipporah. And ultimately Eve, the woman, is at Genesis 3, 3. So I want to take curse. Uh, have, do you still hold fast your integrity, curse God, and die? I want to compare that with what Eve says and what Zipporah says. Essentially, the comparison is, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it. That's what Eve said. Blessed you die. So I have died here, I have died at Job. And God did not say, touch it, did he? He just said, don't eat it. Touch it all you want. Why would they be allowed near it? Because that's the point. 
The point is what? The point is a discussion that was brought up in the angelic realm before man was created. So man has a connection to the angelic realm in the sense that he is the response to it. That's not biblically sound. It's not God is outside of time, but the angels would see man as a response to the issue that they have, the destruction of the angelic realm with regard to sin. God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay? Zipporah said, surely you are a husband of blood to me. And Job's wife, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. Exactly what Satan said he would do, the wife is advocating for. Why would she do that? And nothing about these three statements are easy. They're all a challenge. Individually, you have my permission to take the challenge on. Bring up, bring a lunch, pack a lunch. Uh, but when you, when the intent is to evaluate them as a triad, all three, three pieces of a whole, well, you're going to have to dramatically increase your provisionary assessments. You're going to need a lot of stuff to get through this. Many commentators begin with Zipporah and Job's wife as as they see that those two are the most in alignment. Uh, you are husband of blood, curse God and die. But you, and they disregard Eve. They set her aside usually. Everybody sets aside Eve because they think that it was, it's a simple story and that there's no real value there. It just is the way it is in, in the church today, uh, the contemporary church especially. There is no scholarship anymore. It's all gone. It died out in the early 1950s. In my view, you see some in the 1960s, Imar Dahan, but basically Arnold Fruchtenbaum, obviously, but mostly. Uh, commentary has become simplified because that's what makes money. But you, you, so you can't take Eve out of it. Again, Romans 5.14 tells you you can't take Eve, so does Deuteronomy 18.15. And they're all together, as you, I hope I have made the case for. So again, why does Job's wife advocate on behalf of the lie of Satan? What is the reason? Well, what is the reason that Eve says... Touch it lest you die. In other words, if you just touch it, you'll die. Why does she say that? Why does this woman, the wife of Job, say curse God and die? Obviously, she is deceived. Satan has deceived her. The woman is deceived. The woman is deceived first. Does that sound familiar? 1 Timothy 2, 14 and 15. They line right up, don't they? She believes that Satan is right. She is convinced that Satan is right, just like at least one-third of the angelic realm. They not only believed Satan was right, but they thought there was no accountability of any kind, and they all fell with him. Now, I believe that that issue, Satan's premise, if you will, hypothesis, lie, whatever you wish to believe, his proposal, I believe it affected the entire angelic realm. But a third of them follow Satan because of it. Excuse me. Okay. I need to chew more ice. Critically important. Am I off the camera when I'm over here? That is too bad. (laughs) There's no place to hide. Am I off the camera when I'm over here? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Big problems. I can hide behind. No, I can't. I got it all backed up today. Hopefully I'm not 
disrupting this system when I go back to this uh, dry erase board. If that's true, I'll make the adjustment next week. But I won't watch the lecture. I'll just read the comments. That, that does the same thing. She's deceived. That's the only logical induction here. Satan's statement of Job 1 through 9-11 is believed by Job's wife. That if you take the hedge away, everyone will curse you and die. And this is the only logical explanation. And that would explain her statement of 2-9. If she believed Satan was right about the hedge. Right about the possessions. Right about the blessings. Satan's premise, again, is that Job's fear of God is conditional on the hedge and the blessings and the possessions. That's the, that's the whole argument. And therefore, Job is not something. What is he not? If the only way he is blessing God and won't curse God is because of what God has given him with respect to possessions, uh, family, uh, livestock, servants, and this hedge, then Job is not a free will being. And if Job is not a free will being, who else is not a free will being? Everybody else. And Job's wife agrees with this. And that is identical to Eve. That's identical to Eve's justification of taking of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Cannot re-explain what she did there again at length. Having I've done that numerous times, as you know, a great deal of time spent on what Eve was thinking. So for today, just begin with the addition of Zipporah uh, to the mixture, especially how does Zipporah relate to Eve as well as Lot's wife? I'm sorry, Job's wife. I realize that what I've just done is merely introductory. It's a cursory beginning as I want to do most of the time. In the weeks to come, we shall advance this to the more complicated complex. And all of this is within the brackets. This is all of these guys. This is all in here. They're bracketed. Uh, they're within the bracket that contains the body of Adam, the body of Moses, and the body. So I have the body, 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 Adam, body, Moses, and the body of Christ, Job's wife, and Job are all inside that bracket of that discussion. And all of the and the, what's within the bat brackets ends up refuting Satan's premise of Job 1, 9 through 11. At some point, I hope I make that clear. Now, where shall we be off to next? That was fun, as I define fun. not said by the way for a long time so it builds up inside of me and I have to vomit out by the way okay before let's see we're, we're, uh, I should interject before we leave for only today though Job there are two wondrous, wondrous promises in scripture uh, some might insist there's only one. I, I subscribe to the that there are two. Two fantastic, wonderful promises. One of those is the continuity 
of the soul, which means the soul is not extinguished by physical death because it is not a physical system. A physical system cannot impact a non-physical structure. And the soul, spirit, mind, memory, personhood, call you whatever words you want to use. One of those promises is that continues, is not extinguishable. It is eternal. The other one is the resurrection of the body. Repeat what? Okay, there are two fantastic promises in the Bible made by Christ. One is the continuity of the soul, which cannot be extinguished. It is your personhood. You are a person that has a body. You are not a body that has a person. The body contains no personhood at all. It is just a manifestation physically of the mind. The mind continues post-death. Death cannot impact it because death is a physical process. The mind is not physical. It's never been physical, never will be physical. It does not emerge from the physical nature of the body. It is something that is given to us. It is the breath of the spirit of life. Okay. The other great promise by Christ is the resurrection of the body. Those two fit together. Continuity of the soul, resurrection of the body. These are warranties, and Christ is the warrantor. He specifically guarantees that our personhood continues, again, after the physical death of the bodies, or ourselves, our memories, all our information. So go ahead, spend some time with black holes and information theory, or what they call the black hole wars. I think you'd find that interesting. I can't remember the name. I believe it is Susskind against Hawking there. I'm pretty sure that that's correct. Hawking does not prevail. All the information of our being resides in the soul, the spirit, of the mind, which is unaffected by a physical death system or a physical death process. So that is the continuity. Also, the body is going to be found. And most of the bodies over history have had what happened to them? Disintegration. They've gone completely to dust. They will be found. Christ will find them. That's his promise of the resurrection. He will resurrect all of the bodies of all of the beings that he, he deems to resurrect. And that is not just human. He will resurrect them all. He is able to do it and he is willing to do it. Those are two components of him that are incredibly important. He will resurrect. He knows where the body is. He knows how to resurrect it, and he will. What's at stake is not the resurrection and the continuity. What's at stake, all are resurrected, even the ones who choose not to be believers. The, the destination, the destiny, is that's, that's going to be determined by all at trial, either the judgment seat of Christ or the great white throne judgment. And many will have chosen to reject Christ. I forgot to set up my clock. What time did we start? You have five minutes before I give you your ten minutes. Okay, i got to hurry now. Many will have chosen to reject Christ. They, they will not believe him. What he says, he says that I am the resurrection and I am the one who provides continuity of the soul. He says that in John 11, 25, 8, 12. They do not believe him when he says that and they do not believe in him, which means they do not think he is the creator God. They do not believe that he is the light of life. But for those who do believe him, they will be given eternal life as Christ defines eternal life. And those who refuse his gift of life will receive the alternative. And that is the second death as he defines the second death, which is a separation from him. There is still continuity. There is still eternity. But there is separation. And that he calls the second death. 
Pro tip, mankind's definitions are not the same as God's definitions most of the time. Be wary of including popular cultures, even the popular church's definitions of your theological tenets. Where was I? Okay, last Sunday I said a couple of things. Scientists, microbiologists cannot even explain one living cell. They can't explain it. And that's true. They cannot define life at all. They've never been able to define life. They never will be able to answer the question, what is life? You can ask them that all day long. They will ignore you until you get into another class. You're not welcome here. We don't ask that question here. And that's discussed in Scripture, isn't it? Scripture actually brings up this issue of defining life. What is life? Exodus 8 16 through 19. That's how, which plague is that? Yeah, that's correct. That's the third plague. The, the plague. The dust of the land became lice. Lice are alive. Ask any school nurse. He made life come out of dust. And what did the scientists, excuse me, the magicians, oh, excuse me, the scientists at the time say when they were seeing this dust become lice. Lice covered everything. The dust became lice. There's so much lice they couldn't understand. You couldn't understand the magnitude of it. How much lice is that? The scientists at the time, Exodus 8:19, could not make life from dust. They were trying. They kept trying. They thought they could do it. We can make life from dirt. We can do this. No, they couldn't. And they gave up. There you go. They're the precursors of modern-day scientists. And what did they say to the Pharaoh? They said, this is the finger of God, John 8, 6. Only God can create life. That's what they said, John 8, 6. And yes, John 8, 6 is correct. See also Daniel 5, the finger of God. So, you see, there's no such thing as a simple living cell. The phrase simple living cell is oxymoronic. Living cells have life and they have reproductive capacity. Two things. Life and reproductive capacity. Consider the mathematics of having life and having reproductive capacity. I, I, I could digress that rant here. But I'm known for my mature restraint. No one laughed. Someone's starting to laugh. So I'm not going to refer to those who constantly repeat this phrase, simple living cells. As idiots, I won't do it. I will think that they're idiots. I just won't say that they're idiots out loud. Mm -hmm. Not wanting to diminish my reputation for cultured elegance, gentility. There's, there are some in the audience of which there's only two who disagree with my assessment or my description <laughs> of myself. It is quite common for many to say that Chronister, that Chronister fellow, is cosmopolitan. And common and many and quite are all relative terms, subject to mathematical reinterpretation. There is no zero probabilities. But zero is not a number. Zero is a concept. Just saying that, somebody will understand what I meant. Anyway, the monistic atheistic physicalists Redundancy alert. Monistic atheistic physicalists believe it is a given that everything in the universe reduces to particles. So obviously there's a descendant question from that. When they say everything in the universe is 
is reducible to particles, we have a question that rises up and whoops you upside the head. Namely, what do you say to that? I've been in these classes as a young man. Everything is reducible to particles. And then somebody somewhere, every time, mostly, will know what to do. Same thing that happens in the biological sciences. The question will come out, what is a particle? Isn't this fun? The theoretical physical community hates that question. They hate it. As much as the biological sciences hate what is life. I'm saying define life. Don't describe life. Define a particle. Don't describe a particle. Define life. Big difference between describe and define. Particles are said to be fundamentals or collapse wave functions. We did interferometry many years ago and nobody remembers it. But very important interferometry because it gives you collapsed wave functions into particles. But no one knows what collapsed wave function really means. They'll say they do, but they don't. There's no agreement as to what a particle is in the physics community. Within the conglomerate, that is the theoretical physics uh, arena, unification and physics are ships passing in the fog night. In other words, they're not only dark, but they're in a fog at the same time. They don't hit. There's no unification in, in physics at this point, and I don't expect there will be. There's separate concepts that never meet. I, of course, I'm very pleased with the problem, the definition problem. The inability of mankind to define the creation, either physically or biologically. And I've submitted for many, many years that this should have been anticipated. It should have been obvious. Just read Max Planck. Read Werner Heisenberg. Both saw this coming. That you're not going to be able to describe what we are, or not be able to define what we are describing. Isaac Newton saw it coming. Today, you will find particles defined as representations of groups. That's how they define a particle. A, rep a representation of a group. Symmetry groups, they say. That certainly clears everything up, doesn't it? Symmetry groups are mathematical matrices, or rotational transformations. You got it? Say yes, humor the HTRP. Hmm. Uh, if you want to think of it this way for today, they're saying particles are shifts in direction, shifts in time, shifts in rotation, or spin cycles. They've decided that particles and washing machines have some kind of relationship. But the representation is not the particle. The rep representation of symmetry groups or mathematical matrices is not the particle. Once again, it's the attempt by the scientific community, the magicians, if you will, to just merely describe the behavior of the particle. We can do that pretty good. Not great. But we do it, and the lights are on. We can describe the behavior of the particle, but we cannot describe or define the particle. And, and, and then add the force of gravity. This is why I love gravity so much as well. Another phenomenon that mankind cannot explain, will not explain ever. Let me set this now aside for a while, for now. Wild cheering, go ahead. He's going to stop. But we're going to come back to it. Now you can groan, groan. <laughs> muttering, it's okay to mutter when we get into these subjects. Make him stop. That's shouted by the dozens who, have, who are still listening. Or hopefully they're dozens. There might only be uh, a dozen by now. Okay. That's, I know you don't think it's important, but I want you to know it's important because you have children to raise. I got a series of questions this week on the motives of Satan. Framed this way. I got exposed to ask the questions. One was six and one was four. 
Uh, Terry knows who they are. First question. Does Satan want God to die? No. Satan does not want God to die. That's not part of what he's trying to do. That is obviously proved at the crucifixion, isn't it? Because they threw the, Judas and Satan threw the 30 pieces of silver back to try to stop the crucifixion. So they do not want God to die. Satan, Ezekiel 28, 12, is full to the brim. That's what that word means. He is overflowing with wisdom. No other being is described like him that is a created being. Satan knows that he was created by God. And if God were to die, well, then everything would die, including Satan. And by death, I mean cessation of existence. Satan is not stupid. He's displayed or portrayed as stupid. God is life itself, not subject to death. And so there is no possibility that God would die, and Satan understands that. Is Satan ugly? Was the second question. No. Does Satan have horns? Was part of that. No. Satan is perfect in beauty. Ezekiel twenty-eight twelve. His beauty is perfect. Twenty-eight seventeen. He's incredibly beautiful. Once again, Hollywood are idiots. I should not call them idiots. It's not genteel. Not cosmopolitan. Nonetheless, they are idiots. Never take your theology from the media, ever. There is no one without wisdom more so than the media of this country. They are as unwise as they possibly could get, I thought. But they're going to get more unwise. Mm-hmm. Roman says so. Okay? Hollywood is clueless as a redundancy alert. Why is Satan evil? This is the best of the three. How come it is the best of the three? I did I cleverly did not give you the clue there. It is that it is the best of the three because it is why. It is the why question. Why questions are always have primacy. To repeat, Satan presents that free will existence, again, redundancy alert. You can't have free will without existence. They are interconnected. They can't be separable. Free will Existence can only be revealed by cursing God to his face. Job 1, Job 2. In other words, choosing evil is the only free choice. That's Satan's basic fundamental. Now, there's more to it than just that. And this is a lie. And Satan knows it's a lie. He's filled with wisdom. There's great irony at play here. But Satan is a a deceiver. He's able to deceive people and beings. Some of that deception has been resolved. But nonetheless, they still follow him. They know it's a lie, and they still follow him knowing it's a lie. Why do they do that? But anyway, Satan is and has been unable to resolve the con- or even to conceive the solution to sin and free will and evil and good. He could not conceive of a solution. That is what Matthew 4, Luke 4, Genesis 15 are all about. It's the solution to this issue that is an angelic Genesis, or has an angelic founda- uh, uh, origin. Satan eventually re- realized the solution is a person, the God-man, as you know, Matthew 4. And I have long said that Satan views God's love, 2 Peter 3, 9-10, through 10, the Lord is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance, as he sees that as the 
is the number one, if you will, the, the prime weakness of God. God's love is therefore the flaw to Satan. The frailty, the failing of God is his love in the eyes of Satan. To state it succinctly, God so loves his created, he will redeem all of them irrespective of their hatred for their creator. That's Satan's fundamental. God's not going to do this because his love will overpower his justice, his holiness. And again, that is a omnipotent, omnipotent collision. And that is unsolvable, but it is demonstrated to be solvable in Matthew 4, Luke 4, Genesis 15, and Matthew 26. That's the cup. Okay. So think of it this way. This is probably the best analogy I have. You, you have a beloved... I see you. You have a, let's take the dog, the love dog. It loves you. You love the dog. Somebody has the dog. Duck takes, tapes the dog to them, our child, husband, wife, and jumps in and trying to drown both of them, themselves and the dog. And the only way you can save the dog is to save the evil person. Would you do it? Yeah. Well, he says that's how God's, that's the conundrum he's put in front of God. That's not a very good analogy. I'll clean it up next week. We have the Father who mourns for the lost, who groans. Christ groans and is great, greatly, deeply saddened. John 11, 33-35. He weeps for the lost. He weeps for Israel that is lost. Will he relent? Will he set aside his justice, his holiness, in order, and he does, he would have to set aside his holiness. I'll explain, explain that in a minute. In order to save that whom he groans and moans and weeps for. Will he relent? Satan has accumulated indirectly and directly a mass of people, a magnitude we can't imagine, who will willfully curse God, curse Christ to his face. That's what they will do. Will Jesus save them? It's the question. If universalism is true, and there are many universalists in the Christian church, they believe it is true, that all are saved. Uh, Mormonism, for example, Terry, you would know that. It's not who is saved, it's how close they are to the, the, the light of Christ. And they don't even believe Christ is God, so never mind. Um, if universalism is true, then Satan and his demons must be included in salvation. Does that make sense? Because everybody says, well, all human beings are going to be saved, but they forget that there's another element here. There's another aspect. There's another entity. That's the angelic entity. Will they be saved? If all or all humanity is saved, then all of angelic, the angelic realm will be, the host will be saved. Satan and his demons must be included. Psalm 10.6, then Psalm 10.11, Psalm 10.13, that declaration there will be proven to be true. I got you. And that declaration is, uh, which is the wicked will never face judgment, never face adversity, will never be tried, they'll never be judged. Accountability is a threat, but it's not a reality. That is something that Satan says constantly. Again, Psalm 10 really lays that out beautifully. And God, therefore, will not provide justice, and his holiness is affected if he doesn't provide justice. Think that through without me today. Genesis 3-4 will prevail then. What Satan says at 3-4 will actually prevail. God will be accused of sin of lying. It's a failing. And this, as you know, is why Michael does not rebuke Satan at Jude 9, because he doesn't know how to. He says, the Lord knows how to counter you, not me. 
Michael did not have the wisdom to counter this attack, if you will, this uh, accusation. The mystery of godliness was not revealed until the cross. And what did Satan, how did he respond to that, that God dies? How did he respond to that? It isn't curse God and die, it's curse God and God dies. Satan has predicted by the Pharaoh, because the Pharaoh is a picture of the Antichrist, and therefore Satan, because the two are one, and Satan and, and Judas, as you know, I believe. And the Pharaoh, once he knew that God, he even says, this is God. The magicians, the, the, the scientists said, this is God. And Pharaoh did what? He hardened himself knowing that it was God. Satan sees the crucifixion and hardens himself anyway. Okay, still really got to go fast. Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea, the burial spices. Nicodemus and Joseph knew the body of the holy thing, the holy one, the indescribable, the undescribable, which is why he is the holy thing. You can't describe him as anything but a holy thing. There's no description for him. That's the same as man, as I said. That's the same as the living cell. Can't be described, can he? That's the same as particles. Can't be described. That's the same as gravity. See, wave function collapsing was observation. There's no description for any of this. Who did it? The undescribable one. The indescribable. Did it really fast. Who tied the colt? Because there's a, there's, a, there's a female donkey, I don't know what you call it, and a colt tied. Who, who tied it? Did Nicodemus tie the colt? And the donkey, Mark uh, 11, 1 through 5. The Lord God of creation has need of it. Who's the man with the pitcher of water? Luke 22, 10. I'm going to tell you that's Joseph and Nicodemus. That's who they are. They're working over here. And Christ makes it clear, I've got you apostles, but I've got others. And two of those others are clearly Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. I'm obviously, again, proposing that Nicodemus and Joseph were acting on the orders of Christ, that they had access to them, and he had given them assignments that were unbelievable because they had figured something out that no one else figured out. They knew what the burial spices were really for. They weren't for burial at all, and they knew that. So he gave them other assignments. Tie up the donkey and the colt. Carry the pitcher of water. We'll get to that next week. They knew Psalm 16.10. They knew the holy thing that was Christ could not... Decay could not putrefy, and the body could not go to corruption, and therefore they knew that the wrapping of the body of Christ had a higher meaning. It would testify of a great truth of Christ. I said previously that Psalm 16.10 is the scripture in which John refers to 29. He says, John and Peter came into the tomb and saw the grave clothes and the face cloth, but they didn't know Psalm 16.10 yet. They didn't know the scripture, that the holy thing could not go into corruption. They were expecting a, de a decayed body. There's no decayed body. They didn't know the scripture. <coughs> Obviously, Nicodemus and Joseph had been instructed to wrap Christ's body as though, and though there are no zero probabilities, it's most likely that Nicodemus and Joseph were told why. They would know why. They knew that it couldn't, he couldn't go to corruption, but he told them to wrap the body anyway, and they came with the burial spices before the women even thought about it. Once again, the women are way behind. Once again. Nicodemus is the teacher of Israel, John 3.10. He would know Psalm 16.10. No doubt in my mind that he knew it, knew it. And so why did Christ include the wrapping of his uncorruptible body in his resurrection process? The wrappings cannot be attached to decay or to smell. There was no decay. There was no smell. So what remains then? 
Lazarus provides some information, as you should suspect. Lazarus is wrapped. And he's got to be unwrapped. Who unwrapped him? Probably the ones who wrapped him in the first place. So the wrappers had to unwrap Lazarus because Lazarus had to be unwrapped. Jesus Christ unwrapped himself. And that's where you start on why Nicodemus and Joseph wrapped him. They wanted to do it right. They didn't trust those women. We got to wrap him. There's a specific way he needs to be wrapped. And everybody's got to know. And that's where you start. 65 pounds of material. Some say 100 pounds of material. What is the conveyed message, the meaning? Something is hidden here and it is tied to Psalm 16.10. Asking why it is that Christ's body cannot decompose is another central question. It's a great question. It's a why question. Always ask why questions. Revert yourself to age 6 and age 4. Okay, cleaning up some items from earlier lectures. Why do we have an immune response system, an immune defense, a network specifically designed and installed to protect the body from outside pathogens? Why do we have that? Well, I might suggest this. The answer is attached to Genesis 1-2. That's why. It's also Genesis 1-4. The earth is without form and void, and darkness has prevailed on the face of the deep, and the immune system is likewise, as I said, conjoined to 1-4. God divided the darkness from the light. There's your reason we have an immune system. Got it? Can I quit now? Why did God permit one half of the darkness to continue? Because he could have stopped all the darkness. But he didn't. He kept half the darkness. Why did he keep half the darkness? I won't ask who is the, I won't ask what is the darkness. I'm going to ask who is the darkness. Why did he allow those to remain in darkness? Because God is, uh, that's 2 Peter 3, 9 through 10. God is long suffering and not willing that any should perish. This is the love of God that Satan thinks is a weakness, the weakness. Long-suffering is a time reference. As you know, God provides time. That's why the sun and the moon, the great clock down, or clock down, countdown clock, the ending of the seas. He ends the seas, Revelation 21.1. He's finally ending it. Moses' body was hidden by God, and no other person has this ever been said of. Michael contends with Satan over the body of Moses. Of no other person has this been said. I believe in my most humbly of all humbly opinions that Moses, who spent time with God face to face, there is not there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, Deuteronomy thirty four ten. Moses obviously asked the Lord about his own death. I know he did, and I think that God told him about his death, and I have I have the Apostle John's death, and I have the Apostle's death at the end of the, uh, the book of John to back me up here. Some say the Apostle John's death is as mysterious as Moses, and it's no question, it's really, really something else. No time left to discuss all of that, other than to say, uh, other than to repeat that the Apostles had no fear of death. Nor did Moses, nor did Aaron, nor did Elisha. Just to name three. Anyway, Moses' body had to be hidden. Why? Yay, a why question again. Who's he hiding it from? Obviously he's hiding it from Satan, because Satan's fighting for it. Satan obviously attempted to deny the hiding of the body of Moses. He wanted to prevent that. Next easy question. Had Satan been successful in getting the body of Moses from Michael, would Satan have hidden the body of Moses? Most people think he would go and display it, try to, try to get inside of it. 
try to become Moses, lead Israel astray. That's very common. So that means the body could not have gone to corruption, as I said last week. God intended to set aside Moses' body for some future purpose. Satan must have figured out that there was some future purpose. We have the first coming of Moses, therefore we must have what? The second coming of Moses, and Moses is a type of Christ in Deuteronomy 18.15. I have two comings of Christ, I would have two comings of Moses, would I not? Second coming of Moses. That's to answer that question again. Okay.